and welcome to Lessons Learned, supported by Airhead, with me, Laura Winter. In this podcast, I'm going to be speaking to star sportsmen and women about the moments, choices, or indeed in hindsight, the mistakes that have formed the backdrop to their greatest victories and their biggest defeats. Because more often than not, a lesson learned the hard way is a lesson learned for a lifetime. We are about to delve into my guests' professional and personal moments, both good and bad. From becoming a parent or winning Olympic gold, to getting divorced or losing a race, there are lessons to be learned in every human experience. So here we go then, episode two. I was blown away by the reaction to episode one of Lessons Learned with four-time Olympic rowing champion Sir Matthew Pinsent, and I am so pleased to hear the concept of this podcast The vulnerability, the emotion and the honesty my guests are so generously sharing is resonating so strongly with you all listening. My guest this episode is no exception. I honestly had goosebumps and tears in my eyes recording this. I hope you have a similar reaction. Just a quick note as well to say due to the 2020 coronavirus pandemic, all of these interviews have been recorded via Zoom rather than face to face, but we've smoothed the audio out as much as possible. Before we launch into it, I am so pleased to say this podcast is supported by Airhead. The team have created a truly unique pollution mask for people that love getting active and being outside for their physical and mental health. Active travel and wearing a mask has never been so important. Whether you're cycling, running or walking, this mask offers the most advanced protection. Head to www.airhead.cc forward slash lessons learned to join the Airhead community and claim your discount. So here we go. Sit back and relax. And if you like what you hear, please hit subscribe so you never miss an episode and leave a review as well. I'd love to hear what you think. My guest this episode is the charismatic fans' favourite, Hugo Monnier. The rugby player amassed 241 appearances for childhood club Harlequins, 14 caps for England and two Lions appearances as well. The winger made his debut for the club in 2002, went on to score 89 tries and helped Quinns win four trophies in that time, including a premiership title in 2012. A true ambassador of the game, Hugo retired in 2015 and is now a regular pundit and presenter in BT Sports' comprehensive rugby coverage, which is where we first met. Ugo, a very warm welcome. How are you? Yeah, really well. Good to see you. How are you getting on? Yeah, not too bad, thank you. Uh, I'm so excited to have you as a guest on the podcast because I think you're going to offer a lot of fun and hopefully something profound as well. You actually were the one who compared this to therapy. You said it sounded very therapeutic. (laughs) 100%. I think having, I guess, COVID has given us a period where you can have more conversations um, there's quite a broad depth of topics which you can uncover and I love a podcast format because it allows you time to be able to talk about things which are relevant today and look back in time and reflect on those things whilst, whilst catching up with people that you like so it's kind of a bit of a win-win or whatever it is, isn't it? Yeah and I'm absolutely loving getting stuck into the podcast as well and, and exploring the lives of my guests and I think when you look at sports people's careers from the outside it appears you see sort of that one percent don't you of winning that premiership title on the pitch winning that olympic gold that world championship but you forget the 99.9 percent that goes on behind the scenes which is injuries it can be personal battles personal struggles getting dropped getting beaten and, and all of that actually makes the sports person we see on that pitch or in that swimming pool or you know where whatever arena they compete in yeah i, I completely agree i think we often focus on the end product which is the thing that you see on a saturday whether it's on a pitch in a ring in a pool whatever it might be but to get to that point there is a journey um, there's a lot of hard work sacrifice and it's not always this um, it's, it's not always easy and that's not I'm not saying that in a way in which you've got to feel sorry for sports people because they are living their best lives like when I played rugby I felt it I had the best job in the world and I certainly don't want anyone to feel sorry for myself like it was it was amazing I loved it and it's part of being a professional but I always find the stories of athletes sports men and women far more fascinating than the moments where they were applauded by the country or by the world. Absolutely agree with you. And you've chosen your five moments, um, five lessons you've learned, five things that have happened to you that have kind of shaped who you are. So let's get into it. Let's go for the first one. Um, What is that? I guess it was probably going to private school, age 13. I'm a North London boy, born in Islington, and you often become the things that you surround yourself by. So for me, big thing in North London, and we had it 
just at the weekend, the North London derby, which didn't go our way. Unfortunately, I'm an Arsenal fan. I wanted to play football for Arsenal. It was just really simple for me. Every weekend, you could hear the chants, you could see the thousands of fans that would walk up to what was then Highbury, now the Emirates. And that's what I wanted to be, is everything I, I thought that I could be. And I probably could do a job for them at the minute, they're rubbish, but... Going to a brand new school, a brand new environment, out of the city, into the countryside is where I actually learned my love of rugby. Um, they didn't play football at that school. Um, that was, I thought I was being stitched up. I was like, hang on a second, I've been taken out of the city, into the country. And I'm bored. Like, is this some kind of obscure message my parents are sending me? Because you want me to be away from home and you're also sending me to a school which doesn't do the one thing that I generally love. But um, I guess and we can dig deeper into it. Um, yeah. That was my introduction to rugby. And of course, rugby's played quite a, quite a major role in my life. Gosh, so that was actually the moment that you became a rugby player, essentially. That was quite a pinnacle point, really. Yeah, it's huge. At the time, of course, you don't realise it. I mean, rugby for me was just a vehicle of, um, I, I used it as a way to try and make friends. You know, you're put into this alien environment. I didn't know anyone. There wasn't any other kids that looked like me. And so you just left this challenge. And I guess I, I probably look at my personality now and I would reference the 13-year-old me because I had to get on with it. I, I couldn't really rely on anyone else. I just had to, I had to just get up and go and just, just fit in, um, make friends and just adapt to a, a, to a brand new situation. Um, I think as kids, the one thing we can't underestimate is just encouraging people um, just to go out, explore. And that's exactly what I did. And I think we're very fickle as, as kids, especially in sport. I didn't know I liked rugby, but I knew I had some core physical attributes that might be useful on the rugby pitch. And then you win a match and all of a sudden you get your name read out in December. And all of a sudden, I love rugby because of the kudos you get off the back of it. And so having that kind of reinforced and like I said, that encouragement every single week just meant that I furthered my roots of in rugby and uh, wanted to pay more attention to it, wanted to commit to it a little bit more. And I'm really glad that I did. I think it's really interesting that you you said there that there weren't any other kids that really looked like me. As yeah. a 13 year old black boy coming from North London, going to a private school, it was Lord Lord Wandsworth College, of course, that yeah. was Johnny Wilkinson as well. Were there moments where it was actually incredibly difficult? Did you feel isolated and alone in that moment? Um, no, I've got to say, like the school were brilliant. You know, I was the only black kid at school, and I guess you probably I think now it's like, geez, that must have been tough. Like. I I dropped my daughter off at nursery early today. She started a brand new nursery today and having to make new friends. I mean, there was a few tears and I can understand it's a bigger school. She's out of the comfort zone and all those things. And she's only three and a half now. So I understand how she might be feeling, but I have every faith that the school and the pupils and there'll be other kids exactly like her trying to like find their feet. But me as a 13 year old, I didn't really think any different. I was probably quite naive and just wanted to get on of it I knew this was where I was going to go to school I knew the opportunities the school could have offered me in terms of this education I mean I went from a classroom of 35 to 6 that's a big step like you can't not learn um You've only got to walk around the school to understand it's like schooling facilities outside of just education sporting. So whether it was the 4G, the AstroTurfs, the tennis courts, the netball, cricket, basketball, rugby, everything, all these different opportunities. I was just really excited by that. And that's probably where I focused my attention. And that's probably quite a lot of my outlook, really, to focus my attention on the things that I can do and the opportunities rather than, oh gosh, this is daunting, this is difficult. I need to sh shrink into myself. I need to shrivel as a human being. So I've always been open to what I can achieve and what are the possibilities and I guess as a 13 year old I didn't really well I had an option but in my mind back then I didn't I just wanted to get on with it and just see what I could do. Anugo I must, I must ask as well obviously we've seen huge movement with the Black Lives Matters protests across the world as well we've seen real statements from other sports to cricket and NF1 what do you see rugby doing and what are you hoping to see from the sport that you love in terms of that? Um, 
I think rugby's a, a really inclusive game. I, I really, I strongly believe that. I mean, we look at the squad that went to the World Cup, a third of Eddie Jones's squad was from BME backgrounds. It's the most diverse England team we've ever seen in the history of English rugby. And I think that in itself, and each and every one of them were there on merit, not because they ticked a box or not because of the extra message it was sent to society. They were there on merit. It just so happens that we have a very diverse squad and that's something to be really proud of but it's also something to foster and understand what it understand the makeup of the squad and the impact that they can have because rugby is still a minority sport in this country and and as you all know you've worked at BT on its European coverage and its uh, domestic coverage we go from hundreds of thousands of viewers at the weekend to six nations where you have millions 10 million plus at times and I consider those fans, guys and girls, to be rugby flirts. So when they tune in for two months of the year for those six fixtures and they see a certain face, I want them to have some ability to be able to understand who those people are. Because the reason I wanted to play for Arsenal is because of Ian Wright. You get drawn to people that look like you, sound like you, represent a little bit of you. And we have that now on our rugby side. But rugby can't be complacent. There's so much more we can do. It's really welcoming. You know, if you want to come to rugby and be a part of it, then you can absolutely be a part of it. And they'll they'll welcome you with open arms. The one thing rugby doesn't do so well is actually reach out to those kids communities you know the the pathway to premiership in the international game is private school academy premiership international but we're ignoring millions of kids in the inner city that could be offered an opportunity if i didn't go to school i went to i would never have ended up playing rugby and i ended up having an all right career so how many other kids could have that career and it's not just about the career because I see the personality and the human being that I am today lots of that were moulded through rugby's values teamwork discipline respect they're good core values for life not just in rugby so you're able to pick them up and almost work them in, in any area of your life whether it's your home life, education system, or in your community. I think we're totally understanding now that we just need better people in our communities to have bigger impacts. But from top to bottom, the game can do a lot more. At executive level, board level, there's not enough representation. We're seeing it on the pitch a little bit more. So am I comfortable where we are? Yes. Can there be a lot more work done? Absolutely. Brilliant. Thank you so much for talking so articulately about that as well. Because I know you've been vocal on Twitter with what's been going on and putting your opinions out there. Um, so it's brilliant to hear that. And I think you're right. Sport transcends country borders, skin colour, gender, it transcends it all. It's so powerful for all of us, isn't it? I've always believed that, that sport can do so much good in the world. You certainly can. You know, Nelson Mandela, the late, great Nelson Mandela said, sport has the ability to change the world. He's right. You know, you look at South Africa winning their World Cup and the joy and the hope it brought to a nation. We've seen that story repeated time and time again. It's not just exclusive to rugby, whether it's football, basketball, taekwondo, whatever it is. We know the power that sport really has and and it still has. Um, but this whole Black Lives Matter movement isn't a moment in time for me. It's a constant conversation. I'm thrilled that people are willing to listen. Not everyone is, but it needs to be part of our day-to-day life. I mean, for me, I just think if we all want a better society, a better country, then we need to have these conversations. We've got to provoke the way we think, whether it's from... You know, I think people understand what overt racism looks like. And we've seen a million and one examples of that. I unfortunately have experienced it even just recently, actually, just a couple of weeks ago. But it's for me, it's the unconscious bias. It's the microaggressions. I think we need to understand and educate that. And I don't want to get education twisted. I think people just look at education as a, a thing for the curriculum for school. But education starts at home. You know, I think you have to look after your own ecosystem. You know, I've got to be a better person. It's okay to ask everyone to self-reflect, but you've also got to be willing to self-reflect as well. So I need to be a better person. I need to be a better father to my kids. I need to be a better husband to my wife. I've got to understand the things that I can do that actually make a difference within my ecosystem. And then you can extend that message and look at the people that you orbit in and around. That's the way you'll get consistent change. But the way in which you get consistent change is by consistently doing the same thing. I learned that as a sportsman. The habits that I 
did every single day and led to the type of performance I put out the weekend. And this, we're not, I mean, it's not, it's not a perfect analogy, but all I'm saying is we need consistency. I love the black squares that people put out. I love the hashtags, but it's got to be more than a black square on a Tuesday. I loved it when they did it. But what are you doing today? What are you doing tomorrow? So yeah, for me, it's, um, it's a great time. I just don't want to look back in time and go, it was another one of those moments. It was just like the Brixton riots. It was just like it was 25 years ago, Stephen Lawrence. It wasn't just another George Floyd, but it is a real moment for, for actual change. Absolutely. Yeah, completely. Ugo, you mentioned that you'd had an all right career. <laughs> um, that included, though, international caps, which by any stretch is not just all right, is it? <laughs> that leads us on to your second moment, of course, which I guess has got to be playing for England. Yeah, that was that was mega. It's funny, I think, as sportsmen are really selfish. We have this unquenchable thirst for success. You know, as a kid, I wanted, to, I didn't want to play rugby, but I learned to love it. And then the more you got involved, and the more you fell in love with the game, the more you wanted to achieve and become. So, it went from being part of the under thirteen C team to wanting to play for the A's, and then the sixteens, and you want to play for the first team, and all those things. And I had a brilliant opportunity to play for Harlequins, and that was a real landmark moment my first contract for Harlequins eight and a half thousand pounds a year is what I got paid <laughs> it barely covered my travel like it's ridiculous back in 2001 but the minute you make your debut you know oh, if only I can play for the Harlequins first and just once that'd be great and then you do it then you reset your goals and then I wanted to play for England and I worked really hard and I had setbacks had opportunities didn't perhaps take them and then in 2008 had my opportunity to play for England that was amazing but the phone call I got of Stuart Lancaster ringing me saying, we're going to pull you into England camp and there's every opportunity to play for England the weekend. So it's quite a long process. You get a phone call seven days ago. Like, okay, and I had a game for Harlequins that Saturday and I wanted to play well and I did play well. And then you're into England camp and you pick up the kit and you're looking around the room and you're like, wow, I'm here. But you've not made it. You're just part of that group. Got to train well. Got to feel like you're going to fully earn that shirt and I remember um, the morning the morning of my first game for England I woke up and we have these presentation jackets which you wear when you sing your national anthem and on the back of them have in big letters England and I woke up so the night before put all my stuff out put my presentation jacket on the back of um, the desk chair and I woke up and I looked up and that's the first thing I saw just England and I was like oh my gosh like that's who I'm representing today, like 66 odd million people. And it's nice to reflect on that for just a brief moment, for not too long. Because the minute you go out and 15 of you are going out to represent 66 million, that can be quite daunting. It's a lot of pressure. But it was also nice to appreciate the responsibility that I had today. And it became really real. So from that to the bus journey in, to the thousands of people out there, you're driving through the Golden Eye Gates, you walk into the Twickenham changing room, there's a list of players that have been there and done it before you. And there's legends. Like, you're part of a, a really unique club. And I remember Martin Johnson saying, you're more likely to win the lottery than play for England. And I was like, I, I play the lottery every week. Like, you know, come on. I've never won it. But he said, you'll only ever get one lottery win. You'll get a lottery winner every, lottery winner every single week, but you won't get a brand new cap every single week. There's only been 13, 14, I think 1,500 people that have ever played for England in over 125 years or whatever it is. There's been more lottery winners than that. And it, it just makes you feel special. It makes you understand the moment of history which you're about to step into. So going out through the tunnel, line up to sing the national anthem, all the parents, girlfriends, wives, families, all sat in the same block. The only person I was looking for was my mum. So you sing the national anthem, I looked up, I could see my mum. And it was just like, it was this amazing moment because although I stood there about to go onto the pitch, I felt I was like, I was there with not just my teammates, but everyone that got me to that point. Started with my mum and her decision to send me to school. But your teachers, your coaches, everyone that's poured their energy and their time into you being in that position. I wasn't just representing myself that day. I was representing so many people and that 
that was more special than the game in itself. And, you know, we were lucky to win the game, but it wasn't, of course, winning for your country is really, really important. But actually, lots of things that happened in that day and the representation of me being there to my school teacher, my mum, all those people, that was almost equally as important as results. So that was that was mega. And what it does is it once again reinforces that hard work really does pay off. And I'd worked really hard and had to overcome injuries and hurdles and all sorts of things to get to that position. And everyone does. And lots of people have torrid times and would work twice as hard as me and may not ever be in that position. And I didn't feel lucky. I felt fortunate because it was just, it was a true blessing that day. It was mega. But just once again, that unquenchable thirst, it made me just want more, more of the same. You're going to make me cry. It's 10 a.m. on a Monday. <laughs> I've got goosebumps here. Just picturing you looking at your mum singing the national anthem. It's oh. so so gorgeous yeah and I think that's a really healthy attitude to have that you did take the moment during your first cap you weren't overcome with nerves or pressure you weren't sort of desperate to win you actually took the moment to reflect on what has got you to that point and paused in the moment I think sports people I've talked about it in the podcast before are always looking for like you said that unquenchable thirst that next step right well I've got this cap now what's next what's next and that's a great thing but equally you do need to take those moments to just sit back and go I've just played for England that's extraordinary. Yeah, it, it was nice to have, and it was a brief moment because as much as you can get yourself to an emotional level and, you know, almost life stands still for a second and you can picture all those people that have contributed to your life and figure out the reasons as to why you're there you're there to do a job and it was really nice to reflect uh, lock eyes with my mum and my brothers and sisters were there and that was amazing and then you're like bang straight into professional mode right we're playing against Pacific Islanders right okay kick off first things you can't forget everything that you've trained on in the week and and that's what you're there to do because had I been terrible that day and we had lost and I did a press conference or spoke to fans. I was like, do you know what? It was so disappointing to lose. But what was really special was like seeing my mum. They'd be like, get lost, mate. You're there on the pitch to do get a out, job. Yeah. So just do your job. Yeah. And if I was terrible that day, I wouldn't have played the following week. So it's kind of, I never reflect like that post-match for too long because sport is so cyclical like the week later we played against Australia the week after that we played against New Zealand and it's like you don't have time to wallow in the things you're doing and who you're representing because I think if you get into that mode you you really feel as if you've landed and the game doesn't allow you to do that we have the largest player pool in the world and so wallowing the moment of success that was good wasn't it represented 66 million people today check me out like it's done it's done there needs to be a fire a, a real urgency to look at your game get better so yeah you'll go to the dinner afterwards and you know you take pictures you get your first cap and all the rest of it but come Saturday night or Sunday morning you're already thinking about the things you in fact I always used to go to bed not thinking about the things that I did well genuine this is not me just saying it for the sake of saying it. I'm paid to do things well. Like, I know the things I did well, but where where you actually, actually get growth as a person and as a professional is actually focus on things you didn't do so well. Not use it as a stick to beat you, but that's where you really need to get to that point of real honesty. And yeah, that night, of course I was thrilled to pieces, but I wanted to play next week. So I had to confront the things I didn't do so well to make sure I could fix them in the week to give myself an opportunity to hopefully go out and eradicate them and build on what was a good performance in that first match. So yeah, it was lovely, but yeah, it was great. I mean, I'm retired now. And I can, like, sit back and think of those moments slightly fonder. There's not many matches you actually watch back as a fan whilst you're in the moment because I'm not going to be sat down on Wednesday and go, geez, that was good. Bloody heck, I was good, wasn't I? How good was I? But now I'm retired and I can't do it. It's, it's yeah, it's, it can be quite a nice reminder. And Lions appearances as well. It wasn't just England, was it? Yeah, it was not. So 2008 made my debut, 2009, about six months later. I was selected to play for the Lions and the Lions is almost like 
chasing a unicorn because everyone wants to do it but it's never really it's on your radar but not quite it's once every four years and it's a compilation of the best of britain and ireland and i think time and opportunity if you get those two things hitting at the right time if that makes sense then you can then you can achieve and for me being captain 08 opportunity to play in the lions in 09 that was that that was good time and the opportunity presented itself and i knew i was playing well not just for england but for my club and i got a phone call a month before the line selection was going to be finalized from graham roundtree legend coach to make you in the mix you're in the conversation just make sure your next four games are your best and that was nice to get the heads up help me refocus once again just sharpen my focus and i played really well in those four games and um i thought i've got a chance but you never know there's a lot of like there's some legends of our game that have never played for the lions you know if playing for england's an exclusive club then the lions is the most exclusive club in world rugby and um i remember that morning because you you know there's obviously a massive hoo-ha being made in the media and you got old lines, ex lines retelling their stories. They got letters, phone calls the day before. I had none of that. So I woke up in the morning, like raced out to letterbox, no letters. I was like, oh, it's not happening. And it was being announced live on Sky Sports at 1.30 that day. But I hadn't been given a heads up. So we came out of a team meeting and then um, went down. We had to go and train. And I just flicked the TV on because there was me and maybe five other guys at Harlequins that could have potentially gone on the tour. And I was one of the first names to be announced. And it was like, it was a crazy moment because lads are like shouting, whooping, hollering, grabbing you. And they're all excited, as was I. But at the same time, I knew there was a load of my other teammates that were listening for their name. So I couldn't really celebrate. And I was the only one from Harlequins to be announced in that squad so I was happy but I couldn't really enjoy the moment as I wanted to because I knew there was a lot of people disappointed then we had to go out and train so I got the biggest news I ever had in my rugby life and then I had to like right get on the training I came back after training and my phone had like hundreds of missed calls hundreds of text messages honestly it was nuts I got in the car rang my mum she was going nuts on the phone she was crying her eyes out she's the only person I rang I then drove home. It's like such an anticlimactic story. But um, I drove home, I turned my phone off and just went to, went to bed. I was genuinely so emotionally drained from being announced and just like people just wanted to hear from you, speak to you, congratulate you. I thought the best thing I could do is just turn my phone off and just honestly, I was emotionally just drained. So that was, that was incredible. So to then go on the tour and be surrounded by the best players in Britain and Ireland, legends, O'Driscoll's, O'Gara's, O'Connell, Stephen Jones, Martin Williams. I mean, for me, they were, they were legends. I just wanted to go and learn, like, and from the best coaches. So I was lucky enough to, to go on the tour and learn from these guys and play in some of these fixtures. And then I played in my first test match. And I remember the night before I shared a room with Jamie Roberts and we both said, if our career finishes after tomorrow's game, we can honestly retire happy. That's how big a moment it was for us. Um, the reality is you play and then shock, you want more. <laughs> um, but playing that game was was mega. I got dropped after the first test match, so it wasn't all plain sailing. So you've, you've reached the top of Everest and then you've got to climb it and then get that back down to earth. And one thing which is so great about sport is just so humbling. <laughs> whenever you think you've done it the sport will find a way to humble you and I was and um, but I was so lucky so fortunate to finish the tour and on a right note I scored an intercept try the best moment of my like rugby career score a try and we won that match and the only way I can explain it is in terms of what it meant for me so I picked up the ball I think it was about 70 meters out it probably took me about seven seconds to score that try so that was 2009. So 2009, I was 26. I started age, started rugby age 13. Seven seconds. Took me 13 years to finally reach that moment for seven seconds of glory. But if I had to do another 13 years for another of those seven seconds, I would do it again. And I would just keep doing it again because that was everything. Absolutely everything that's what it meant to me and I can see that's what it meant to fans it was just yeah it was beyond are you getting emotional because honestly you're gonna make me cry seriously yeah yeah I, yeah I am a little bit I've got goosebumps thinking about yeah. it just um you know it's 
you know, it was just, well, there's so many things. I mean, the try was, was great. I was like, loved that try, my best moment. But then, you know, it felt a little bit like redemption after being dropped from the first test. South Africa, if anyone's, if anyone doesn't know much about South African rugby, it's, it's what football means to us here in England, but more because for lots of, I mean, people understand the politics, the history of South Africa and sport really is uh, a beacon of hope and light to a nation. It really is. That's what it means. They were 2009 World Cup. So they, they were 2009, they, they were world champions at the time. They were tri-nation champions. You have to go to their yard and sport's a religion, rugby's a religion there. So to be in arena, Ellis Park, one of the most iconic rugby stadiums around the world, score that try, look up in South Africa and just see a sea of red. Fair not being at home game, and everyone's going nuts. But then Ricky Flutie, he was Englishman, who came, cuddled me. Um, Stephen Jones, Rob Carney, and Tommy Bow. You had almost every nation that the British and Irish Lions represents in that one moment. And then Ricky just wouldn't let me go. He just wouldn't let me go. And those moments in itself, uh, yeah, they're, they're just... They're <laughs> it's hard to put into words. They're just so magical and... They're things that will never, ever, ever leave you. They're, yeah, they're moments that don't define you, but they certainly shape you. And you communicate so eloquently as well, the, the emotions of those moments. Because I honestly feel like I'm there with you. I'm there on the pitch watching what you're doing. Uh, it's just brilliant to hear. Before we delve further into the lessons Ugo has learned, I wanted to chat about my sponsor, Airhead. Now, I believe strongly in active travel and protecting our environment, and I'm so excited to have support for this podcast from this brilliant new company. Airhead was started in London in 2019 by three friends. The founders are all keen cyclists, much like myself, and while commuting in the city, they soon realised the existing mask market proved hot, uncomfortable, embarrassing to wear, and in some cases ineffective. So they quit their corporate jobs and joined forces with a team of expert designers at Brunel University to make radical improvements to pollution masks. With masks now commonplace, why not wear one that will also protect against air pollution? It is estimated there are 64,000 deaths in the UK due to air pollution and exposure to dirty air is also proven to negatively impact sports performance. Sign up and join the Airhead community for the latest news and an exclusive discount for Lessons Learned listeners. Head to www.airhead.cc forward slash lessons learned. Away from the field, away from the pitch, you're married, you have kids, and I'm sure those were two moments that have very much shaped who you are today, post-rugby and away from the sport as well. Yeah, of course. I think, so I had my first child a year after, so I had it, like my wife actually did all the work for me. Yeah, um, correction. <laughs> yeah, I became a father for the first time a year after I retired, and I think it's a landmark moment because you are, I think... In sport, you're almost defined by your job description. Hi, I'm Hugo, the rugby player. For 14 years, I was, hi, I'm Hugo, I play rugby. And then you retire and you think, oh my gosh, like, that life is gone. Like, what else can I do? And I was of the opinion that I could achieve more in in my second career or leaving or exiting the game than I did in 14 years of playing it. It's not, it's not the end of something. It's just the start of something new. And becoming a father, like... That's pretty cool. That, that's amazing. And so this perception of like a part of you dies when you play rugby. Yeah, I mean, this sport and team sport especially is incomparable to lots of things you can do, but it doesn't mean that you can't go on and achieve amazing things, especially away from the game. Being a father is like just incredible blessing. But I guess like once again, like we had a miscarriage before we had our first one. And that was like, that was tough. That was really tough. I can't, I can't imagine, but not to the same extent like what it was for my wife. So there is, so there is, it, it was once again an amazing thing to kind of be able to like weather that storm and be able to like unite, get even tighter, navigate your way through that and then have this beautiful being, which my first daughter, Phoenix, she's just over three now. And so that was, that was amazing. It, once again, I think once you go through adversity, it gives you a greater appreciation of the things that you do have. And Phoenix was like the centre of our universe. And she's still is. She's amazing. And then went on and got second, Ruby, like I'm done at two. Like, you know, all children are a blessing. Can you be blessed too much? Yes, with children, like two, I can 
just about like look after and <laughs> I feel blessed. I've got two girls and I'm a proper girl dad and it's nuts because it took me out of a place of ignorance because I remember all I wanted was a boy. Like I remember going to the scan like a gender reveal and on the scan I was like, oh, are they testicles? Are they? Like you, you just see things because you want to see them and like, no, they weren't testicles. Like I was having a girl and I, honestly I was ignorant. I was like, what am I going to do if I have a girl? Like just play Barbies and ballet and stuff. But like, I genuinely couldn't be happy that I've got two girls. She's amazing. Like, she's absolutely amazing. And they both are, in fact. And um, it's it's great to like think different, uh, have a slightly different perspective and outlook, and uh, recalibrate and figure out your and find your reason why. Why? Why do you do certain things? Why do you work so hard? Why do you want to be a better person? It's because of them now. Everything I've done in my career was for me. I wanted to be better for me because I wanted to achieve this. And I wanted to do that. Now I want to still achieve lots of things for myself but I want to share some of those achievements the reason I want to be good at certain things is for my kids to be a better example to show her that she can be anything she wants to be and I had that moment actually I'll never forget the day May 22nd about 7.30 at night, I put my daughter in the bar, we were chatting, and she was like, just so obsessed during this COVID period, she was like obsessed with nurses, she said, I wanted to be a nurse, I want to be a nurse, I said, why? So I want to help people, I'm like, yes, I've got a good kid, she's socially aware, she's conscious. In the bar, she said she wanted to be a nurse, I said, oh, that's amazing, I said, is there anything else you want to be, Phoenix? And she said, I want to be the fastest girl in the world. And I'm like, yes, what? Phoenix. Like, where does that come from? And honestly, it took me back. And I was emotional. I was like, oh, so what? what? <laughs> and um, I want to be the fastest girl in the world. And I said, Phoenix, do you really want to be the fastest girl in the world? She said, yeah. And I went, well, daddy will do whatever it takes to support you in any way possible to achieve that or anything else you want to be. And that's like, what a moment. Like, that was just, she just blew me away. And if you can get inspired by kids that are tenth your age, <laughs> you know, that's just phenomenal. And once again, it just showed opportunity, possibility. Like, you can go out and be whatever you want to be. And she has that vision, age three, which will change next week and the week after. But the fact she's speaking so profoundly from such a young age just, oh, just gives me so much joy. It's amazing. So when she becomes world record holder over 100 metres... And you're interviewed on BBC or whatever it is. You can talk about that moment in the bath when she said she wanted to be the fastest girl in the world. And then Honestly, she was. she went to bed that night and I was like, almost like prepping my like <laughs> post-race interview. I remember <laughs> May 22nd, 2020, when she first actually admitted to one to be like, it was a, a real like landmark moment. Like she doesn't realise, won't make an absolute footnote on, on her life. But what it was for me, I was like, wow, that's so profound like the fastest girl in the world not at school not in nursery not in Twickenham not any like in the world and like kids can challenge the way you think and like she had such a global vision for what she wanted to become and I think we can as adults because of history things that happen to you they shape the way you think and often I think we undersell ourselves we undersell our ambitions we just want to I don't know there's a comfort in just just staying in your lane like she wants to stay in a lane on the track but my word there's nothing holding her back there's nothing suppressing who or what she can become it's amazing it's amazing to hear I love Phoenix already what a superstar (laughs) honestly and she's clearly inherited some of your ambition and and competitive drive and nature as well what are your other your two moments we haven't yet talked about which is quite extraordinary given your career we haven't yet talked about the 2012 premiership title you won with Harlequins what a pretty big moment Hugo yeah it was was mega like In terms of the legacy that team leaves at Harlequins will go down in history as the first team to have ever won a title for Harlequins. Can't take it away from any of us. Um, It was extraordinary. And, you know, I remember the day like it was yesterday. People ask me all the time, what was the best moment of that day? And they always think you're going to talk about the trophy lift because that's the moment you're crowned champions. Yes, that was great. We both work in the media and we want access. We want, you know, cameras in changing rooms, we want microphones under chins as soon as they walked off the heart race at 200, they could barely talk, let alone think. And my best moment of that day was walking into the changing room, shutting the door away from the world. And the only people left in that changing room was everyone within the team that had contributed to that year's success. Players that hadn't played, physios, backroom staff, kit men, coaches, players. You look around, you're like, we did it. We did it. 
as a group of group of guys and girls. It was amazing. And within that team, like we'd also grown up together. We'd all come through the Harlequins Academy. We'd all shared this vision. Uh, we had loads of setbacks. We got relegated in 2005, went through Bloodgate in 2009, one of the most iconic but desperate, sad moments in um, Premiership history. Google it. It will be there for you to, to, to read up on if you're not aware of it. So to kind of come through those like bad, negative moments in time, they do offer opportunities to reflect and, and build character, and that's what we had done. But that was just a phenomenal day. And the one thing now as a pundit, whenever I'm at a cup final, European, domestic, World Cup final, there's lots of things I think in the commentary box. But one of the first things that are, how good is their night going to be? Like, that's honestly all I think. Like, how good is tonight going to be? And I'll tell you what, we had some night that night and some night, some day the next day. Like, we parted so hard. It was just amazing. Like, I love to have fun. And you got to. You can't go through life and careers and all the rest of it, just win stuff, be successful, and not celebrate them. Because you have enough down times where people tell you you can't do it or you're rubbish, your crap should be selected. So it's so important to make sure you celebrate the good ones. And we had such a good night. It was amazing. We um, went out Saturday, fancy dress Sunday. We went on tour to Slavka of England. And then we went to Las Vegas for a week after that. So we like properly like had it. And I yeah. loved it. And I did it with like my best mates. And I've got a tattoo on my backside to share, to, to show for it. I will not be sharing that with you as much as I've shared everything. But a silly oh, yeah. tattoo <laughs> in Las Vegas after a Prem final win. That's, yeah, a souvenir to look, to look back on yes. and remember it all, isn't it? No, it, yeah, it must have been the most incredible moment. And I love those moments as a reporter, as, as an interviewer. And I'm very privileged yeah. to be right there in the moment where someone's just won a bike race. Someone's just won, you know, an F1 race. Someone's, they've won a cup final in, in rugby. And you're right there at that moment. And it's such a privilege to witness. You literally see it dawning upon them. You see them, the realisation of what they've just achieved and how much it means to them. And the emotion is bubbling over it's tangible and it's such a powerful moment again sport just brings you so much yeah i love pre-match interviews and post-match interviews because you get a glimpse of honesty everything else is so uh talk, about, talk to us about the opposite oh well you know they're tough and we've got respect and even if they don't it's just <laughs> you know what it's like laura like the cliches you, yeah <laughs> you know the answers they're going to give because they don't want to give anything away but then there's the beauty of sport you then tap into their emotions side because they can't hide from it whether it's the devastation of losing or just winning emotion overrides almost their ability to be able to talk and give that media answer and bring out that straight back and they're the things that I love and there's loads of interviews I remember like if you want to insight to Johnny Wilkinson's mindset He'd won his third European title in three years of too long. They won at the Millennium Stadium in his last ever European match. He was retiring seven days later from rugby after achieving everything. A global icon, a national hero. And so the game was epic. I think he got man the match. Interview. So Laura, you're in that position. Michael under his chin. Johnny, talk to about this moment. And I was just expecting, like, overwhelming emotion, gratitude, all the rest of it. In your last European game, he said, we've got a huge cup final next week and I'll be focusing my attention on that. And I was like, he wouldn't even give himself a moment to just... And there's no... I mean, there's massive correlation and no surprise as to why he was so consistent for so long. Because even in that epic moment, which was an emotional moment for him, must have been your last game. He was already thinking about next week, the job wasn't done. And I'm sure after they went on to win the top 14 a week later with Toulon in France, he would have allowed himself that moment, but he couldn't bring himself to enjoy it, just, just being totally um, absorbed by that moment. I mean, I would have been doing cartwheels, top would have been off, you know, like, wow. Right, take me around Cardiff. What a night we're about to have, but he wouldn't allow himself to do it. And that's why I guess he did what he did. Johnny Wilkinson is one of my sporting heroes, actually. And if it's the bookshelf behind me, there are, I think, two or three Johnny Wilkinson books. And I think he's the first player that I kind of, well, I'm going to be honest, fell in love with and actually brought me in to rugby and really made me love the sport um, and love England around the whole kind of like 2002, 2003 yeah. era. So it's funny that 
we've brought him up now two or three times because he is, like you said, such a global icon for the game. And you can't really talk about rugby in this country without reflecting on on him and what he achieved. And, and like you said, talk about sporting excellence. We talk about his mindset. Well, I mean, you see, his mindset was um, was remarkable. You mentioned earlier, like we went to the same school. He was a couple of years above me, but. I remember, like, age 16, whilst we were, like, messing about in between classes, after school, just doing what kids do, he'd be out on the pitch with his dad, practising, kicking off left foot, right foot, kicking at goal, drop goals, all those things. And, you know, I mentioned 13 years for seven seconds. I don't know how many years he gave. I mean, his body has suffered. Mentally, he suffered, and he speaks openly about it, but all for this pursuit of excellence. I mean... Is remark- I don't know many 16-year-old kids that even think that way, let alone then put it into practice. He is the ultimate example. And it's so great that he's still part of the game. He mentors some of the guys in the current England rugby squad. But why would you lose that rugby intellect? Why would you lose that personal relationship with rugby? He's been there and done it at every single level. Yeah, he, he is, he's an inspiration. But, you know, he's a guy that transcends just rugby. Because if you if you ever had the opportunity to sit down with him, he's oh, he's a deep thinker, he's a remarkable man. Um, he really is good human being. Okay, your final moment, please, because we kind of left it blank at the start, didn't we? We wrote down the rest, but you weren't sure about this moment. Are we going to talk about injuries or where are we going? Yeah, go? I guess you know it's I've spoken about some some great moments that I that I've been lucky enough to have within sport, but. <laughs> That's good, but that's also um, inaccurate of what it takes to, to be a high-level athlete, sportsman, woman. So I think it's just important to talk about some of the setbacks, some of the negatives, some of those down moments, some of those times where you're vulnerable and you're not sure whether you can do it. And this isn't a unique story to me. Speak to any sportsman or woman and they will have those moments at different points in their career I had loads of injuries. One of the most significant was, um, I think I was age 25, so a year before I got capped and all went on the lines tour. Yeah, year before I got capped, I um, suffered a horrific back injury. It was just during a sprint session. I was jogging, warming up, tried to sprint, hit the deck, couldn't stand up. Really weird. Couldn't stand up, couldn't feel my legs. Unbeknownst to myself, I slipped a disc. And I couldn't even go home. I lived on like second or third floor apartment. Couldn't get up the stairs. So I had to like sleep on my mate's front room for three days. Couldn't, I couldn't walk to the toilet. He brought a bucket, which was there to, for me to use. I, I couldn't do anything. And that point, it was a case of not about rugby in my career. It was about my, own, like, my health, well-being. I was like, this is nuts. So that was a really dark moment. It was great to obviously overcome that and go on, play for England. And, you know, they're the bits which inspire you that you know you've had you've had to put the work in. You know you've had the setbacks. And it appreciate, makes you appreciate things just a little bit more. But then I remember off the back of playing for the Lions, like... I mean, that was amazing. I've spoken about that. Came back and in 2010, we played against Argentina and I played the worst game of rugby I'd ever played in my whole life. I mean, not just at an England level, at any level, under 13. I was surely never that bad. I, I played at fullback for one game and I dropped everything. And my aerial ability was one of my, I'd consider my super strengths. And so the psychology of that was taking your one of your best skills and it becoming your biggest weakness on that day. You're like, who am I? Like, on the pitch, there's nowhere to go. There's eight and a half thousand people in the stadium watching you. There's millions of people at home and you're fully exposed and vulnerable. And I was awful. I remember I was asked, did I want to do press straight after? I said, yeah, of course. Like, I'll do press if I was man the match or front up now. And I just said, I was shocking. But I said it earlier, like, that's where sport can be so humbling because, yeah, I was like, I felt as if I was at the peak of my career. And then in a moment, bang, 80 minutes you get brought back down to earth. But I mentally suffered with that moment. It took me the best six months to get over that game. Genuine, like, did I have the support? Probably. Did I know how to tap into that support and fully engage in it? No, absolutely not. I know I know so much better now. But I had to go through that experience to learn and sort myself out. But that was that was really tough to be as exposed as what I was in that day. And I put it as a landmark moment only because... It's so important to 
tell other people that you will have those moments in life. For me, it was on the pitch at Twickenham. For you, for others, it might be at home, could be at the workplace, wherever it might be. But you have those moments where you feel like you've hit rock bottom. But you've got to navigate your way through it, figure out who you are once again and get yourself back on the horse. And that was a really tough moment in my life. That really was. One minute you're told that you're brilliant, you're great. Because that's what people do. They just tell you you're good. That's all they do. Is they want to fill you of confidence, motivate you. You go out, you believe it, and you're not. And it's amazing how you can be an established rugby player and then straight after the game think you're no good at what you do anymore. And that's just not the case. But that's where your mind like overcomes your actual body. And that was that was really, really, really tough. Like I, I properly suffered from that. And uh, I wouldn't wish it on anyone else. But it's also really important to go through that because I think when things just come easy, you don't fully appreciate them. When they get taken away, when you have bad moments like that, you get yourself humble and you've got to work twice as hard. So that was a, that was a, another big moment. I've got lots of shirts and lots of memorabilia from good days, bad days. And we've spoken through some of those. And I have that shirt. I have that shirt framed because it's a good reminder that it doesn't matter where you think you are in your life, how good things might be. (laughs) Life can flip quite quickly. And that's not me trying to project negativity, but it's a good humbling moment just to remember, you know. And and also, it was another thing I I remember saying, you're never as good as what people say you are. And you're certainly never as bad as how you think you might be. And you're always somewhere in between. You're never a 10 out of 10 but you're never a one out of ten. You're always somewhere in between. And of course, you oscillate in between those two those two numbers along that scale somewhere. At that moment, I thought I was a one, probably less actually. But I wasn't, I wasn't. I just had to remind myself I wasn't. So that shirt, England against Argentina, is a good reminder of that. I think that's such a profound moment to end on as well, because I, I really do believe that we actually learn so much more as human beings from the bad moments in our lives and, and the moments oh. where you go through something awful whether it's something in your personal life whether it's something that's happened in the workplace or something you know like you that's happened on a pitch in front of 80,000 people millions watching at home for me if I slip up doing something on tv and then I'll lie awake at night for the next two weeks thinking god why did I say that word and not that word it's ridiculous but you're so right that it's because what we do forms part of our identities and if something you believe is a key strength of yours and suddenly you no longer have that or you feel it's been taken away or your very essence of who you are has gone as as you see it temporarily it may be it's it's very difficult but once you're through it and you look back kind of six months a year on you'll see how much you've grown I think as a human being and and how much we all can learn from these human experiences whether they're good or bad couldn't agree more especially during this period of lockdown where people have felt isolated everyone's in different situations you know and it would have been tough for everyone some days you have brilliant days the sun is shining like it is today and life feels great and there's other days where you almost can't get out out of bed but the beauty is is actually it's okay to like not be okay and it's okay to have bad days it's okay to have those down days not every day is going to be a great day that's part of life it's part of learning it's part of growing up and I'm still growing up I'm the biggest kid of them all so it's okay just to accept those things um but it's where you then want to put your energy next because if today's a bad day and it then affects you to write off the day after and the week, which can quite easily be a month. And all of a sudden, you've just just spiraled out of control. Like the things that happen today don't have to determine what happened tomorrow. And that's something I've had to learn. I had to learn it in a very public, vulnerable way. But I learned it all the same. And it's just, it's part of, it's part of me. I don't shy away from it. I'm like... It was one of my moments. I wanted to bring it up because there'll be other people that will be able to relate to it in their own way, in their own life. But, um, but yeah, those bad days don't, don't strip you from all your other qualities as a human being. They, it was just a bad day. <laughs> That's all it was. Hugo, thank you so, so much for speaking so honestly and, and candidly with me. Um, I've absolutely loved it. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Take care and hopefully I'll see Cheers, you soon. Cheers, Hugo. See you soon.
Well, there we go. It was such a delight to chat to Ugo, who spoke so eloquently about racism and what we can all do as a society to implement change, as well as reflecting on his own achievements and perceived failures, both personally and professionally. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. That's it for episode two. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget, hit subscribe, leave a review, and get in touch on social media as well, at Laura C. Winter on Twitter and Instagram. Plus, if you think your friends or family might enjoy this, please share it amongst them. I'll be back next episode on the eve of the Tour de France, speaking to professional cyclist Nico Roach as he embarks on his 10th edition of the race. Until then, bye for now.